Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vasilietis. This is a special bonus audio lecture for 7-3 notes. Here we go. Okay, so what I did was I typed an essay for you, which is featured under 7-3 notes in Google Classroom, titled, Wilson, Idiot or Idealist? Here we go. The untimely assassination of Austria's Archduke Francis Ferdinand plunged the nations of Europe into war by August of 1914. Most leaders calculated that it would be a short summer war between nations vying for territorial acquisition and geopolitical power. The conflict soon proved to be a prolonged and existential one as the utilization of mechanized warfare reared its ugly side of industrialization and human potential. By 1917, soldiers, resources, public opinion, and treasuries were exhausted, and European leaders desperately sought ways of ending the war quickly. Allied persuasion, continuing sinking of U.S. merchant ships, and the recent revolution in Russia prompted U.S. President Woodrow Wilson to ask Congress to declare war on Germany on April 2nd, just a few months after his second inauguration. The man who kept us out of the war a year before reluctantly committed to the slaughter along the Western Front with a mixture of solemnity and restrained optimism. For Wilson understood that the fight for sustainable peace would not be waged in the trenches, but on the conference tables in Versailles. In the socio-political wake of fervent progressivism in the United States, Wilson hoped to expand the idealism of the movement to Europe by offering a post-war plan that would ensure that World War I would truly be a war to end all wars. His plan, later known as the 14 Points, revolutionarily outlined a new world order facilitated by international law, courts, and security under an association of nations. He was so excited about advocating for these plans that he personally attended the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, the first time a sitting president ever traveled outside the U.S. Wilson's commitment to ushering a modern international arena was tragically misguided, however, because it failed to appreciate the prevailing philosophy of realism firmly entrenched in the minds of other Allied leaders responsible for shaping post-war Europe. The first section of his plan detailed methods of eradicating the circumstances that contributed to the war in the first place. Wilson's first four points dealt exclusively with stabilizing Europe as it called for open treaties, free navigation of the seas, free trade, and a reduction of armaments by signatory nations. The first point elicited skepticism from Europe's experienced diplomats. Having treaties available for public scrutiny may have been a well-intentioned effort to prevent a web of entangling alliances, but for many statesmen, this policy was antithetical to how negotiations were traditionally conducted. 
Diplomacy was a messy and vitriolic process, as it usually called for an arrangement between two rivaling nations. Vague discretion was key in creating treaties, as it shielded diplomats from retribution from possibly making necessary, albeit politically unpopular, decisions. Establishing free seas and trade was another potential problem for European leaders, particularly British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. These points may have seemed reasonable to the United States, which had been gifted with a comfortable geographical position and a bountiful surplus of manufactured goods ready to be exported to a tax-free foreign markets, ironically purported by a relatively consistent trade policy of tariffs since 1816, but they violated the interests of war-torn England. Anglo dominance over the geopolitical arenas in Europe, Africa, and Asia necessitated the implied threat of its naval forces. Indeed, Germany's challenge to British's long-standing maritime hegemony in the 1900s was one of the causes of World War I. It was understood that any action that would invoke provocation from Her Majesty's Navy would result in a blockade of a trading port and subsequent economic strangulation. The British capitalized on this fear by using it as a diplomatic leverage to achieve their foreign policy objectives. Fully complying with Wilson's policy of free seas and trade would challenge England's long-standing method of naval coercion. Despite constructive Anglo-American relations in the beginning of the 20th century, David Lloyd George received Wilson's points with courteous detachment. Points 5 through 13 outlined a plan to organize and recognize new political entities emerging from the ashes of the Austrian, Hungarian, German, Russian, and Ottoman empires. Restructuring political borders, guaranteeing regional sovereignty, and promoting equitable governance were all packaged under the vague principle of self-determination. For Wilson, the dissolution of autocratic regimes served as a testament for a new era of international relations facilitated by world democracies, a sort of providential fulfillment of his rhetorical assertion to make the world safe for democracy in his joint session of Congress back in 1917. However dreamy this vision was, it was not shared by others that made up the Big Four. To be sure, they supported sovereignty in territories such as Belgium, Austria, and Poland because they saw its value in curtailing future German expansion in Central Europe. Even breaking up the powder keg of the Balkans would further assuage their tension. Supporting the principle of self-determination beyond these areas of interest waned, however. As Marx impetuously noted half a century before, the spectra of communism continued to haunt post-war Europe. Many progressives in the United States, Britain, and France initially applauded the Russians in ousting their incompetent and superstitious czar. The political future of the country remained as mysterious to the West as its Slavic culture. It was unclear at the time which revolutionary faction would lead the country and create a government under similar tenets of liberal democracy. By 1919, the Politburo had assumed de facto control of Russia and was struggling in the process of actualizing the egalitarian principles of Marxism while simultaneously consolidating political power in the formation of a one-party Bolshevik rule. Political realists calculated that respecting Russian sovereignty and waiting for a favorable result was too risky. Despite Allied efforts to thwart the rise of the Bolsheviks by funding the White Army during the Russian Civil War, most of the nations of Europe eventually allowed Soviet communism to exist. This decision would later prove to be a grave mistake for leaders in democratic nations by the mid-20th century. The tension between self-determination and intervention would later become a predicament for Western democracies in the Cold War.
The concept of self-determination was also threatening to European powers that held colonial territories throughout the world. European leaders feared that Wilson's call for self-autonomy, whether he intended it or not, would inspire revolution in areas such as Ireland, Egypt, India, under British control, or Morocco, Algeria, and Indochina under the influence of the French. There was also the question of spheres of influence in the Middle East and Asia. Prior to the armistice and the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, England actively engaged in three different territorial arrangements over the sparse of the Arabian desert. The Balfour Declaration, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and the McMahon-Hussein Correspondence all outlined post-war Middle East under the mandate leadership of England and France. Although European support of new nations such as Syria, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, and Palestine aligned with Wilson's lofty ideals, it was only superficial. In reality, these nations were provided with limited political independence and ostensibly existed to fulfill European oil interests. Wilson's inability to effectively negotiate for genuine self-determination beyond European territories was either due to the vagueness of the term or his lack of desire to fight for people under the scope of imperial control. Despite this setback at the Paris Peace Conference, Point 5 proved to have lasting consequences as indigenous leaders under colonial oppression would later utilize tenets of Wilsonianism as the foundation for their nationalistic movements in the 20th century. Although Wilson eventually capitulated to the pressuring interests of England, France, and Italy, he did so with the knowledge that there was still hope of actualizing his agenda for world peace. Wilson reasoned that a League of Nations would create the platform to eventually push for the goals in his 14 points. This association would prove for collective security and justice through the establishment of a robust executive, legislative, and judicial branches. If he included in the Treaty of Versailles, the, the League would provide the opportunity for nations to express their grievances in international courtrooms without resorting to armed conflict. Wilson envisioned that the United States would take the helm as the leader of this international peacekeeping organization. Surprisingly, the other three leaders at the conference consented to the establishment of what, what Wilson frequently referred to as the Covenant. The biblical undertones of this nickname for the League of Nations provides keen insight into Wilson's quasi-prophetic assertion of American exceptionalism traced back as far as John Winthrop's City Upon a Hill. Despite cynicism and apathy, European leaders agreed to include a charter for the League of Nations in the treaty. Celebrating this diplomatic victory was short-lived, however, as Wilson faced obstruction in the Senate. Since the multi-party election of 1912, Wilson struggled to remain as president without overwhelming support from the populace. Additionally, the war effort distracted Americans from their federal-led progressive agendas, and the Democratic Party was facing a reactionary wave of opposition from conservative Republicans. The midterm elections of 1918 was a decisive turning point in American politics as Republicans won back the majority in the House of Representatives as well as the Senate. Instead of calculating the shift and working on a bipartisan effort for peace, Wilson stubbornly snubbed Republicans, particularly his rival, Henry Cabot Lodge, who had extensive knowledge of international relations. When the Republicans took back Congress in 1918, Wilson went to Paris without inviting key influential leaders from the opposition to come to this historic meeting. Had Wilson extended the responsibility for constructing a new world order to his political enemies, it is possible, although unlikely, that he would have mitigated obstruction of the treaty. Instead, Wilson's move was assigned to Europe as well as the United States that this was solely a partisan agenda. 
The president hoped that the lofty principles of the league would be able to transcend party politics and be passed, a poor calculation that cost him the very idea he envisioned. Conservative Republicans rejected the covenant on the basis that it could potentially drag the United States into frivolous world conflicts. Furthermore, the League seemed to violate the long-standing Monroe Doctrine and force the United States to forego its foreign policy objectives in South America for a broad and ethereal platform in world affairs. Despite Wilson's accurate pleas to the contrary, Republicans refused to ratify the treaty without any amendments. Even liberal Democrats were not completely supportive of the treaty, as they believed that it did not go far enough to dismantle Britain's and France's imperial grip on their colonies. Faced with opposition, Wilson attempted to persuade the public to pressure their congressmen to ratify the treaty as it stood. This idealistic attempt to appeal to his constituency cost him his health. The professor from Princeton suffered a stroke and had to spend the remainder of his presidency in the confines of his bed. The treaty failed to ratify in the Senate without support. One cannot ignore the parallel of this event in history to one of Sophocles' Greek tragedies. Wilson can be easily viewed as the heroic figure who wants to pursue a noble agenda, but ultimately falls due to his inability to recognize his own faults, as well as the faults of others. It is hard to assert that things could have been different simply because the very personality that stubbornly saw his revolutionary, revolutionary idea rejected in the Senate was the same one that promulgated it into existence in the first place. Despite initial political opposition, Wilson's vision of the United States as a world leader survived and was eventually adopted by both parties as the dominant school of thought in international relations. The rise of radical ideologies and political instability in Europe in the 1930s, however, prompts historians today to wonder a better world had U.S. decided to take on its responsibility sooner.